3: New York City and Boston get gold stars for topping this year's City Clean Energy Scorecard, but even their high marks show great room for sustainable improvement. Plus, fires in California are devastating the state, but officials say there's a risk for fires here in New England. And a Boston neighborhood fights for its trees, how a boulevard redesign threatens to intensify the damaging environmental impact. Later in the show, we're bringing together both sides of the Question 1 right to repair proposed law, one of the most contested ballot questions Massachusetts voters will decide in November. All your questions about Question 1 answered by advocates for and against. But first, joining me remotely, Beth Daly, editor and general manager at The Conversation U.S. Hi, Beth. Hi.
2: Thanks for having me, Callie.
3: Glad to have you. Dr. Erin Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Thanks for joining us, Erin. Pleasure to be here. And Kabul Eames, Legislative Manager at the Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Hello, Kabul.
4: Hello. Great to be with you all.
3: I'm glad to have everybody. So let's just kick it off with recent political activity, Beth, because you have a very interesting piece in the conversation about 2020 elections um, will determine which voices dominate in public land debates. That will have a great amount of impact on so many Uh, issues. So I wanted us to take a moment and listen to, first, uh, President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden at the first presidential debate, followed by last week's Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris debate. Both groups were talking about climate change. Crystal
5: clean water and air. I want beautiful, clean air. We have now the lowest carbon. If you look at our numbers right now, we are doing phenomenally. I believe that we have to do everything we can to have immaculate air, immaculate water. We can create hard, hard, good jobs by making sure the environment is clean and we all are in better shape. We spend billions of dollars now, billions of dollars on floods, hurricanes, rising seas. We're in real trouble. Well, First, I'm
1: very proud of our record on the environment and on conservation. Our air and land are cleaner than any time ever recorded. Our water is among the cleanest in the world. Now, with regard to climate change, the climate is changing, but the issue is, what's the cause and what do we do about it?
0: Joe understands that the west coast of our country is burning, including my home state of California. Joe sees what is happening on the Gulf states, which are being battered by storms. Joe has seen and talked with the farmers in Iowa whose entire crops have been destroyed because of floods. And so Joe believes, again, in science.
3: So uh, Beth, uh, James Skillen uh, wrote the piece uh, for The Conversation, and he really outlines the the very different perspectives on how both mainstream conservatives and, on the left, what uh, Democrats want to do in terms of land management. Explain it, if you will.
2: Yeah, I mean it's really it's really fascinating and 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 really uh, his, his argument is that the next president will really can literally reshape the American landscape um because there's such disparate views on both sides about it and so many things are in play. Um so on the right you have these mainstream conservatives, um, corporations, they want historically, um, I should say, what Republicans want, you know, reduced regulation more resource development on public lands, less public land ownership altogether, they they really are against that. And what you have is on the left is Democrats who want, you know, really uh, good land management, environmental protection, a more uh, liberal wing of the Democrats, I would say, wants no fossil fuel extraction whatsoever um, on public lands. Um, so it's it's a really tense <laughs> standoff. And depending who wins we're going to see, uh, I think things really begin to change on the ground.
3: I think also I would note that a number of people online anyway, while the vice presidential debate was going on last week, kept asking, why is this fracking thing so important? Right. Why are people keep bringing it up? And why is vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris saying, you know, Joe has not said there'll be no fracking? That is because a wing of the Democratic Party would like to see a ban on hydraulic fracking. And there is that tension there. And so I think she just wanted to be clear that that's not something they as a team, had signed off on
2: right. I mean, it's really interesting, right? Because for some time, you had, um, I'd say the the pipeline was, you know, fracking was battled together, and Kamala said it several times. You know, we are not against fracking, and right. it's a really strong <laughs> signal to folks out there that you know we're not we're not going to pursue this. We may pursue other environmental protections. Um, It's interesting, though, because it does create a split in the Democratic Party because, you know, progressives are calling for more dramatic action to slow climate change, including banning fracking. Um, So it's going to be very interesting if Biden gets elected to see how that plays out.
3: So, Cabo, um, what's your take? This is a very interesting piece about, you know, I mean, you don't think about how extremely different the uh, landscape would look uh, depending on the policy. But this is stark.
4: It certainly is. And, you know, I I would say that the federal land fight is um, critical because there's a lot of also sovereign nations out west and they are losing their land. I just saw that the EPA uh, stripped 38 tribes in Oklahoma of their sovereignty over environmental issues. And it establishes a legal and administrative way to potentially um, have environmental abuses on tribal lands. So, you know, the fact that the current administration is for deregulation because they believe that regulation and innovation are enemies is just a false perception and just further perpetuates a false narrative that um, environmental protections harm land, harm um, everything. It's, it's really, um, it's criminally negligent, in my opinion, uh, what the administration is doing right now.
3: So the Trump administration, Aaron, moved the Bureau of Land Management's headquarters from Washington, D.C. to Grand Junction, Colorado. On its face, that would seem, you know, they're closer to many of the issues which are situated in the West. But uh, it appears that the agency and those would be the career scientists who are are trying to run the agency are struggling um, in the new location for a number of reasons. What's your take on that? Uh, I was on the board of scientific counselors to the National Center
1: uh, on Environmental Health at the Center for Disease Control. Uh, That council, in addition to many others, not just at CDC, but across uh, the federal government were dissolved by an executive order of this administration. This administration did essentially the same thing as it did with the Bureau of Land Management with the part of the CDC that is charged with addressing pandemic risks. It essentially moved it from CDC to DC and, and the same effect, which was, you know, segregating the people who actually knew the systems in the federal government had knowledge, uh, you know, kept, cut them out of the loop, put it in the hands of bureaucrats. Um, and so the challenge is uh, when reality doesn't fit the picture that the ideology would state, you know, there's a choice, which is people actually change their views or they have to double down. And, and so we have an ugly tendency that we've seen here uh, that the ideology continues to win, and the and the and the problem is that everyone in the country, and frankly around the world, when it comes to climate change, and especially folks who've been most vulnerable and left behind, poor individuals and families uh, in this country, people of color are harmed the most. And so, you know, we 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 can't afford to ignore science. Uh, we can't afford uh, to to pursue ideologies blindly. And, and I'm afraid that's, that's we're seeing that in, in spades at this moment.
3: So moving on, this past week, the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy released its annual uh, City Clean Energy Scorecard. So following up with what, what you said, um, Aaron, lots of people are focused on making sure that at every level there is focus on what environmental damage could do and ways to prevent it. And Boston came out number two, interestingly, of the top cities this year. It was one last year. New York City topped it this year. And in the report, which is quite detailed, uh, they went on about how there's much work to be done in all of these cities. But I think what I took away from it is that uh, cities are engaging at very fundamental levels in trying to address these issues. Now, you can argue about how much they're engaging, but they are engaging, and this uh, does not seem to be a foreign idea to many of them. I wonder what your take is on it, Aaron. Well, what I love about it is that it, it shines a light on
1: something that cities are increasingly realize is a real uh, draw for businesses, for residents. They want to live in places that are known for addressing, you know, climate change, addressing uh, injustice. Uh, and, and, and the private sector knows this when they're recruiting for folks. So it's this virtuous cycle where the cities that define themselves on a basis of being energy efficient, addressing climate change, uh, addressing injustice are the places that businesses want to go and the places that the, you know, people who are learning about the world and inspired by the opportunities that we can that we have to really make a huge difference want to be. Now, there's a little bit of what I like to think of U.S. news and world reporting going on, which is every year uh, the, the, <laughs> the earth has to shift. Otherwise, it's not as interesting. <laughs> and okay. cities are doing a ton. That's true. But you know, it's hard to read a heck of a lot between number one and number two and the jumps up and down. But they do focus on good things. and And I think you know with any ranking system it emphasizes certain things and may de-emphasize other and given a city's you know inherent strengths and attributes it may you know put certain places uh at a competitive disadvantage uh and so it's important that folks recognize that this like u.s news and report is not the ultimate source of truth on how well a city is doing i also should compliment the, the, the fact that they, they they pay attention not just to the high performers but to the folks who are actually improving the most. So in this year's report, they called out uh, St. Louis uh, and St. Paul. Um, and I think that's critically important because it's one thing for a city that has relatively large amounts of resources and infrastructure that may be more uh, amenable to you know, energy efficiency and other environmental measures to do more versus a city that has major obstacles, maybe not a strong tax base, uh, all, all the things that are, that are helpful. And so I think that's a really nice part of the report too.
3: So, Kabul, I think that uh, what Aaron said about uh, you can do well by doing good, um, because a city that is more energy efficient, that is paying attention to these issues, is very attractive now to businesses um, that are thinking about uh, climate change and um, the threat to the environment. I do note that their study, their report says that only one fifth of the, c- the cities are on track to meet their greenhouse gas reduction goals. So, that's what they mean by there's plenty of room for um, improvement. But what's your take on the fact that this is getting attention? However, I, n- I realize I- I'm going to take Aaron's point about it, you know, being the U.S. News and World Report kind of thing. But, um, you know, it gets your attention about actually what's, what cities are doing.
4: Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I would say we could all use some good news right now. So, you know, anytime I read something like this that's uplifting, I do take it to heart. But I also think that it. It points out that because we have a lack of leadership at state and federal levels, you know, you're seeing this kind of patchwork quilt, if you will, of cities and towns creating their own policies. You know, whether it's Boston or you know, Acton, who just through their town meeting declared a climate emergency, um, or activists putting renewable energy on the ballot in 19 districts, the way we have here in Massachusetts. You know, we're basically um, relying on the governments of cities and towns to be doing their own work. When really, you know, this is a much larger scale that we need. And uh, and you know, luckily we have some folks in local governments that are taking this issue seriously.
3: Um, Beth, what about that? That yeah. that is a very important point. Go ahead. No, I,
4: <laughs> I think
2: I think I was gonna make the exact same related point. But like, if you don't have I think it's great, right, like Boston has been a leader, and this New York is a leader um but other places aren't, and they don't have the incentives they don't have the leadership to to go there yet, and what you need are government policies that provide incentives that provide um requirements uh to get there because that's what works I mean that's a role that government can play federally um and it wouldn't be such a patchwork and 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 that that's really what we need to look at at these you know, the best practices of each of these cities and then start formulating policy around them on a federal level.
3: Hmm. All right. Well, moving on, um, my goodness, I have just been devastated looking at those California fires, Um, sometimes waking up and knowing that, you know, some of what is outside my window actually came as far from California. It's called a giga fire. That's a new name for how expensive the burning is. There are a lot of related issues, not the least of which is there's some toxic water that's left behind. Can it get any worse, Beth? Tell me about this toxic water.
2: What really struck me, and and, and we've been reporting on this a lot, is just how many toxins are released in a wildfire that can affect, uh, I mean, we know part of this, but not just air quality, but water quality, too. And that comes from a couple of interesting things is that trees actually hold a lot of toxins in them from the environment um, that they live in. And when they burn, um, in addition to wood smoke and fine particulate matter, they're also releasing those toxins. And the other thing that I really had not really thought a lot about was drinking water. We had um, a couple of scholars from Purdue uh, University, Andrew Welton and. Um, I think it was Caitlin Proctor had written about it, um, that they did studies about how water can get contaminated from these really hot wildfires. And um, that means they, uh, water pipes buried underground and inside the buildings uh, get contaminated when fires occur and release toxins. Um, you have a lot of um, uh, other poisons coming in from burning vegetation, plastic material that burns, chemicals in the air could be sucked into hydrants as water pipes lose pressure. So you have all these sort of um, the debris of a fire, kind of eventually coming down to the drinking water in some cases, not every case. And it's a worry that many people had not thought of before,
3: um, but it's becoming more of an issue. And, Aaron, we had talked last time, we all gathered together, that um, the firefighters who are you know, on the front lines of this will suffer some esophageal or some respiratory issues. And then we're in the middle of a pandemic, which is a respiratory disease. So that's another thing to worry about. The Bay Area, Seattle, had
1: the worst air quality in the world for, for days uh, and during these fires. Uh, I, I think it's important on the water front as well uh, to recognize that it's not just the, the toxic chemicals that get released into the water stream because you know plastics uh, get incinerated and chemicals there's commonly in houses get you know all these things uh, get put up uh, in, into the atmosphere and into water. Um, the burning of the forests takes out the primary, water filtration system for, for, for the water hmm. we drink. There's degradation in water quality. So then you have to spend more money filtering water either in a filtration plant, build new filtration plants or the water quality just degrades overall. And so I think there's a longer tail to the water problem than simply flushing the pipes out and uh, patching the pipes. And this may in fact be a, a tipping point in how climate change is affecting the fire uh, probabilities in California, and importantly, in eastern parts, including you know, the Upper Midwest, Eastern Canada, even New England. And I think it's important for folks around here in, in New England to recognize that there are wildfires in Eastern Canada that, that definitely affect our air quality and the air we breathe. And there are fires, as has happened in the last year in New Hampshire and Maine, um, that are becoming more probable because of climate change and not just because it's getting hotter and drier, uh, but because the trees are on the move.
3: Mm. So Kabble, I think a lot of people would be surprised by something that Aaron pointed to, which is that the the same kinds of fires that are happening in California can happen here and are, have happened in New Hampshire. So I want you to respond to that. But first, let's take a listen to the New Hampshire Litchfield Fire Department Deputy Chief Doug Nickel and Captain Douglas Minor of New Hampshire Forest and Lands. They were speaking about New Hampshire's risk of wildfire.
6: Now that we're getting into the cooler nights and getting into fall conditions, the humidity is really low. And so that makes the fire danger pop up.
1: The drought obviously... Uh, adds a different dimension to it, as well as the COVID-19 issues. Uh, We're seeing more use uh, in our forests and in our parks and more people recreating. We just need to make sure that they're being
3: responsible. What's your response?
4: Uh, It it makes me nervous when I hear this because I, I, I know what's happening in California personally from friends that have been in quarantine for as long as we have. And are now not able to go outside because of the smoke, and so with Massachusetts now facing e- extreme drought conditions, um, particularly in parts of Bristol and Plymouth counties, um, you know it makes me nervous that we are headed towards the same fate. And there's little that I hear about this when I am talking to legislators um, within, on Beacon Hill or just in my own town, um, select persons and alike, that, you know, kind of everyone just feels paralyzed by the fact that we are basically taking a nature walk through the book of Revelations. Um, And, you know, we we do have climate legislation, I I will say, at the House um, right now, where we've had, you know, in 250 days since the climate bill passed the Senate, and there's been about 70 days since the Massachusetts climate bill passed the House. So despite, you know, this horror story that's circling around us, um, we don't have a climate bill coming out of Massachusetts, So it's paralyzing um, and quite frightening, to be honest, to know that what's happening in California, we're getting the alarm bells here, that uh, it's at our doorstep.
3: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with Beth Daly of the Conversation US, Dr. Aaron Bernstein of Boston Children's Hospital, and Kabul Eames of the Better Future Project. We're talking about the latest environmental news you might have missed. Um, speaking of trees, uh, Dr. Bernstein, you took a rather strong stand, as did I, uh, about uh, what's happening in Roxbury and the plan to redesign Melnea Cass Boulevard, which is a main thoroughfare, which would involve removing uh, the mature trees, many of the mature trees. Um, Before you weigh in, let's take a listen to Dr. Britta Lundberg of Climate Code Blue, physicians advocating for environmental justice. She's speaking at the Speak for the Trees Boston's call to action event last month on behalf of the fight uh, for Melnea Cass Boulevard.
2: Cutting down these trees will exacerbate existing health inequity like asthma, COPD and heart disease that disproportionately burden the residents of this community. Increased air pollution is associated with increased mortality from COVID. This is certainly not the time to be increasing air pollution in the midst of a pandemic that thrives on air pollution.
3: So, um, Aaron. This was a plan that began in 2011. Uh, Community has pretty much consistently opposed it, but it got new energy recently when the actual trees were marked for destruction and and cutting. And there's been a a kind of communal rise up led by uh, City Council President Kim Janey and uh, Michelle Wu and other groups. I mean, this, this story,
1: Kali, there's so much to dig into here. I mean, in the letter I wrote to the Globe, one of the points I made is that we have to remember that Melnea Cass was built on the rubble of, of homes of poor people of color as a part of the Inner Belt Project. So it, it is inherently a charged piece of territory. And the community that lives there now, as, as we know, is largely a community of color, That neighborhood is one of the greatest heat islands in Boston, except where those trees are. We know that trees do absorb air pollutants. But the other thing, there are people who live under those trees. The homeless population, the population of people who are addicted to to opiates and heroin, uh, they live there. You know, we're also prioritizing cars over people, right? The main thrust of this is to improve the traffic flow through the neighborhood, the Melnea Cast story is such a crucible of, of of historic and current day racial uh, injustice. Of of how pandemics sort of knit together these social problems. About a path forward that really can be uh, uh, around transportation, uh, a solution to so many of these problems. You know, the, you know, actions that address urban heat islands are invariably anti-racist actions because uh, because of historical uh, redlining, uh, which we know has prevented. Um, green space in many uh, cities around the country um, can actually cool off neighborhoods that are vulnerable and reduce air pollution, which, again, you know, the, the inner belt was built uh, where it was because people were considered lesser people. Uh, and, and only because of that do we see these injustices uh, in, in the world.
3: Uh, Kabul, this is where you live in terms of uh, grassroots organizing around, you know, communities fighting um, against uh, damaging environmental impact. Um, What's your take on on this? And by the way, we should say that so much of the pushback from from various community groups uh, has uh, forced the uh, mayor to put the plan on pause. Now, people are not feeling comfortable with that because they they want to be assured that it's going away. But right now it's on pause. Go ahead. Yes.
4: Yes. I I would say that this is really exhausting, to be honest, because. Boston has a climate adaptation plan that aims to increase the city's urban tree canopy. Uh, so removing trees contradicts that plan. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's just no shortage, shortage of poisoned communities. And so, you know, the environmental justice community has got so many uh, things on their plate right now, whether it's the Weymouth compressor station that they're all showing up for, whether um, it's drinking water situations in Saugus. Um, you know, this is just another kind of slap in the face to say that uh, there are disposable communities out there, regardless of climate adaptation plans. It's, it's looked at as lip service. And it's really exhausting that we still have all of these sacrifice zones, if you will, um, and low-income and uh, people of color neighborhoods. And, um, you know, I, I just, I hope that, that they do continue to press pause while they look at this. Um, it is, again, <laughs> it's, it's 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 criminal that, that we're having this conversation right now, in my mind, you know, just two years after the IPCC report came out that said, you know, we, we better get our act together um, or else, you know, it's just, it's not about how far we fall off the cliff, but how hard we hit the water. And then we just keep, you know, having these Um, plans that just completely contradict everything that we're being told by the science and environmentalists and and climate activists at this point are exhausted. And so I really hope Mm. that, you know, we, we get to a point where we can come together and talk about mitigation and adaptation versus, you know, this ridiculous plan to put more cars on the road.
3: Last word, Beth.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, there's always this tension, right? Like, is it going to be for the roadways or is it, is it going to be for the environment and the walkers? And every now and then a case comes along that symbolizes everything. And and this is it. To Aaron's great point, to your great uh, essay, Callie Cobble's excellent point is that this is this is really symbolic. And sometimes symbol, symbolism means a lot. And we you, you go down the lane at cash, and you kind of look at it, and I I do it a lot. I'm kind of like, well, couldn't they do this and couldn't they do that? But the end of the day is it really is about are we going to choose cars over people in the urban justice, area, environmental justice area? And the trees, frankly, are gorgeous and they're mature and they're beautiful. And it's time that uh, I, I feel they they just don't pause, but they stop the project because – It's such a symbol of what's wrong if they go forward.
3: Well, we're going to have to leave it there. And um, I thank you all for your insight on these very deep and often concerning issues. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Callie. Great to be here. Thank you. Beth Daly is an editor and general manager at The Conversation U.S. Dr. Aaron Bernstein is the interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. And Kabul Eames is the legislative manager at the Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Coming up, ever heard of the word telematics? We hadn't either, but you will need to know what it means when voting this year. Massachusetts Question One on the ballot explained. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Cars are getting political this year, and what's under the hood is at the center of a contentious campaign about Question 1 on the Massachusetts ballot. The new law would update the original Right to Repair law, also passed by voter referendum in 2012 and went into effect in 2013. The law currently mandates that all independent vehicle repair shops have the same access that automakers have. Supporters say a yes vote on Question 1 guarantees that independent auto repair shops will not be cut off from the new wireless technology known as telematics and shut out of the market, while supporters of a no vote on Question 1 say greater access to the wireless data of telematics could pave the way to malicious cyber attacks and tampering of your personal data. Joining me remotely, Connor Unit spokesperson for the No on One campaign, the Coalition for Safe and Secure Data. Hi, Connor. Hi, Kelly. Also with me, Tommy Hickey, director of the Yes on One campaign, the Right to Repair Committee. Hello, Tommy.
6: Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me.
3: So, by now, uh, probably many of you listening have heard some of the ads. Let me just play some for you so we'll all be up to speed. Here is the Yes on One ad.
4: I always hated taking my car to the dealership for service. Are they telling me the truth? Am I being overcharged? I finally found a local mechanic I can trust. But now the big automakers are starting to restrict access to a car's mechanical data, which will force consumers to the dealership for overpriced repairs. Question one right to repair will fix this and protect our choice in car repair. Please vote yes on question one.
3: And here's the no, Ed. If question one passes in Massachusetts, anyone could access the most personal data stored in your vehicle. Domestic
2: violence advocates say a sexual predator could use the data to stalk their victims. Pinpoint exactly where you are, whether you are alone. Even take control of your vehicle. Vote no on one. Keep your data safe.
3: So let me start um, with you, Tommy Hickey. This is because you're voting yes. Why is there a need to update the current law, which already states that independent um, shops should have access to whatever they need, the information they need, the data they need to repair so that would seem to include whatever comes along, you know. We, I think, the law took into account that there was going to be some technological change. So why doesn't that cover
6: it? So I don't think the law actually does anticipate uh, a lot of these technological changes. Uh, just, just so to give a background, in 2012 we passed the right to repair at 86%, and and what it what it did was mandate that car manufacturers give the same diagnostic repair information to the independent repair shops that they give to their franchise dealers. What was happening is that car manufacturers weren't giving the full information to independent repair shops. Independent repair shops were obviously losing business by sending cars to the dealership, uh, costing the consumer more. and, And like I said, losing business for independent repair shops. So we passed the 2012 Right to Repair Law. And there was a car vote in the law for wireless communications, remote diagnostics. Uh, It's a system known as telematics. Um, In 2013, telematics wasn't in a lot of vehicles. Uh, It was a very unknown technology, just like a lot of technology we have today uh, was unknown in 2013. Uh, But fast forward, there is now 90% of the new cars in 2020 have this telematic capability. So there's a loophole in the law for any diagnostic repair information generated by this wireless system. Car manufacturers are the only entity that has access to this. So keep in mind that's an entity that's a monetary interest in controlling this because they now have a loophole around the 2012 law because it does not cover this wireless diagnostic uh, information. Um, So this ballot initiative looks to close that loophole and instead of having the car manufacturer be the gatekeeper of this information, we as a coalition believe that independent, uh, I'm sorry, car owners should be the ones that are the gatekeeper of their diagnostic repair information. This ballot initiative as written would mandate that car manufacturers give direct access to car owners for their diagnostic and repair information. Um, If you look at the attorney general summary, she'll summarize it as mechanical information necessary to diagnose and maintain and repair the car. That is not GPS information. That is not personal information, which I'm sure Connor will get into later. But this is about an initiative to close a loophole for wireless communications that are now in 90% of new cars, a law that 86% of Massachusetts already voted for, And we need to evolve with the car. As cars start to evolve, we move to a wireless society.
3: Um, So, Carnot Units, Tommy's made the point that the the current law does not say specifically telematics. But again, I I thought the law said that whatever diagnostic information data that uh, independents needed to repair the car had to be passed along from the automakers. And so that would seem that that would include any new technology. Tell me why you believe that it does.
5: It absolutely does, Callie. And um, there is a, a couple things. First off, there are actually three different methods uh, in the bill for that are proposed ways to connect both the OBD ports that are used now. There's different other connections that were kind of envisioned in 2012 um, to ensure that this was somewhat future-proofed. Um, But there also is an entire graph that specifically deals with telematics, and it says that any information necessary to diagnose and repair a vehicle that is uh, made available to dealer repair shops and is only available via telematics must also be made available to local mechanics. So this is covered, and the the reason we know this is covered is because right now the law is working. Every bit of information that that folks need to repair their car, uh, the mechanics need to repair your car, they have access to. And that has been testified to by the yes side on Beacon Hill that has been uh, quoted in, in any number of articles about this question. So what they're talking about uh, is this hypothetical situation in the future that is already covered by this telematics clause in the law.
3: So I guess my question to you, Tommy Hickey, is this like a premature referendum in that currently it? seems to be covered, but maybe down the road there might be more, but technology is going to continue to evolve. So does this mean we need to have a new bill ever so often? What, what, what's your what's your take on this?
6: Listen, I certainly hope we don't have to do this uh, again. Um, wireless communications are wireless communications. Now, car manufacturers are always looking to put independent repair shops at an advantage because it boosts their profits when people go to the dealerships for after warranty repairs. Um, I think the proof is in the pudding here. There is no wireless communication system given to independent repair shops. I think when you're talking about 2018, 2019, 2020 cars, um, independent repair shops cannot fix them. Uh, We're a coalition of 1600 independent repair shops here in Massachusetts.
3: So you mean currently right now I take my car in and I have telematics. My independent guy or woman could not fix it. Yeah. There's,
6: there's absolutely countless stories. And I urge people to talk to their independent repairs that do have these new vehicles. Now, I understand a lot of these vehicles are under warranty, but people that are going to independent repair shops with these new cars, these new 2018, 2019 cars, independent repair shops cannot completely fix these cars and they're being forced to send them to dealerships. And I urge people to talk to their independent repair about this. And I do want to say too, Cali, this is only going to get worse. We're moving to a wireless society. There's Tesla cars driving around right now without OBD ports. Without an OBD port, independent repairers cannot diagnose the car. They cannot fix the car because that was the old 2012 law. Cars are evolving. We're moving to a wireless OBD port and we need to cover the law to reflect exactly what cars are, which is computers on wheels.
3: All right. So, Connor, what about that? There are independent repair shops that can't uh, get the data in this moment. uh, This is what Tommy Hickey is saying to repair the car. Is it that they're so they are not adhering to the law? So if they requested it, could they get it or is it just they can't get it, period, as Tommy is saying? Well, for
5: starters, we've been asking for actual concrete examples of information they have not been getting access to for over a year now, and the Yes side has still not provided any concrete examples of this actually happening. It's a claim they're making, and as Tommy just said, most of these vehicles that he's talking about, 2018, 2019, 2020, most of those are still under warranty, so if folks are going uh, outside of the the dealer repair shops, they are paying more than they would if they went to get warranty-covered repairs in any case. Uh, because warranty-covered repairs are free to the consumer. So I still have yet to see a concrete example uh, of any of this information. But, yes, as you said, these are covered under the law. So to the extent that there is information that is somehow not being provided, that would be covered under the existing law, and there are enforcement provisions, and there are enforcement methods in that law for folks to get the access to the information or use the process to enforce the existing law.
3: Okay, so we reached out to mechanical and industrial engineering professor Shannon Roberts of UMass Amherst, um, and she has a, a comment to make about both both sides of these issues as presented. So first, let me Tommy, this supports your case. And Connor, this is an exact example that she had. Here she is talking about her recent experience at her repair shop.
0: I'm speaking anecdotally because I actually had to get my car repaired recently. The dealership wasn't able to fit me in for a couple of weeks, but I needed new brakes. So I went to a local shop and the first thing they told me was, you have a newer car, we will try to fix it, but we can't guarantee that everything will work correctly because we don't have access like the dealer would. So I'm positive that this new question one will give them more access based on personal experience in terms of what the local repair shops can actually do.
3: All right. Now that brings me to her second point, looking at this from the outside on both sides of this. And that's a concern about what data is collected if this information, the telematics comes into the automakers, it's wireless, and now they're going to store it in the clouds. That's not where they had before. So it'll be in the cloud. And the question becomes then, who has access to that? So you have that data uh, and the automakers have that data, but independents can't get that data. But who else might be able to have access to it, which makes it a problem? So here's again, Professor Shannon Roberts of UMass Amherst talking about potential hacking.
0: It's definitely not a stretch to say that someone could access this information. When you store information in the cloud, even when you physically access Uh, information from the port that's in your car, there's always the chance that someone could take the information. So specifically with your car, the personal information that it's recording include things like GPS coordinates. And so you could look at a series of GPS coordinates and from that you could figure out where someone lives and where they work because those would be the most common GPS coordinates that you would download. So there is the possibility of stalking there because you know where the car is located and you can for where, where people are when the car is at that location. However, there's not much more personal information besides that that's in your vehicle. Some newer cars have things like Bluetooth and Wi-Fi capability, but the personal information that is associated with those things is the same as the personal information that's associated with your computer or your cell phone. So the risk is sort of the same across those things. The main thing that they would be interested in would be the GPS
5: coordinates.
3: So um, I'd like to get both of your response. Connor, you first. Connor, again, is the spokesperson for the No Unwon campaign.
5: Sure. Um, on, the, on the first point that she made about the breaks, Everything she described would be covered under the existing law that bringing your car into the shop and plugging in and and them saying they don't have the tools to fix it. Question one would have no impact on that. Question one is only about wireless diagnosis uh, information and and repair information. So if she's bringing the car into the shop and plugging in and and they're saying they don't have the information to fix it, that is all covered under the existing law and would not change whether or not question one passes. Uh, On the second Point about the cybersecurity and GPS location, I completely agree with her, and that is why we've been uh, raising the risks associated with this question because GPS GPS location in real time, uh, remotely is is the biggest threat here, and and it's not. I want to be very clear. We're not saying that uh, the risk comes from say local mechanics being able to access this data. The problem is. The open access platform the question one would create significantly lowers the protections and the barriers to entry to get the barriers to entry to get into your car's computer and get access to this information.
3: Do you think, Connor, that this is worse than potentially the kind of access that bad actors, let's say, could have to your data from your, you know, your ring system uh, on your door or your iPhone. I mean, we are all at risk to some extent. So the question is: Is this worse? Uh, can you speak to that?
5: Absolutely. No, I, I think that's a. You know, there is certainly risk, right? Nothing is impenetrable. I think what we're talking about here, though, is uh, all those those situations you described. Those are companies. So it's whether it's Ring or it's Apple or it's the car manufacturers or it's banks or anyone else that's charged with protecting information they have a hugely vested interest in protecting against hacks and protecting their customers and protecting their, their information and their safety. What question one would do is remove automakers from the equation. It, cre- it it requires the creation of an app. It does not say who's building that app or who's securing that app or who's updating that app. Um, but that app would be able to directly access this open access platform, which again is, is, uh, does not say who's building it or who's securing it, uh, or who's ensuring it's updated against hacks. What it does specifically say is that manufacturers cannot have a role in this. So you're removing manufacturers from protecting the information of their own customers, and that is where the risk comes in because there is no one that's going to have a more vested interest in protecting that than the companies themselves.
3: Okay. So, Tommy, respond to uh, both uh, Professor Roberts' comments and then to this last point about the removal of possible protection that automakers could have because it's it's not under their purview anymore. It's just you know, available in the clouds?
6: Sure. So to her first point, um, that's exactly what we're, we're dealing with is these newer cars have these wireless codes or they have information that's missing where independent repair shops have no access. I think you made a point where you said, um, well, could they, could they ask for it? I think it's important to remember that car manufacturers are our competitors. They have franchise dealer agreements where when they put a car into a dealership, they receive a profit from it. So they're clearly not going to be running to give independent repairers any of this information unless it's designated by law. Um, so to say they're gonna ask for it is, 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 is not going to happen as car manufacturers have no reason to give them this wireless information because it's carved out of the law.
3: No, I understand that. I guess what I was saying is could they ask for it as because it's mandated by law that they be given information in order to repair the car? So
6: if you look at the law, there's it it, it carves out this remote diagnostics, this wireless communication system derived from the car. I mean, that's what we're talking about. There's no standardization on it. There's no fair and reasonable pricing. Uh, There's no timely uh, giving of this information. I mean, look, when you get a car in a shop, you can't wait four weeks for a manufacturer to give you all the information necessary to fix it because mm-hmm. wireless communications wasn't dealt with accordingly. And, mm-hmm. and, and really that's what this comes down to. And, and to her next point about the, the safety of this, car manufacturers are already doing this. They're already collecting this remote diagnostics and, and more. And to, so to say that, you know, giving the owner of the car their own diagnostic repair information is a safety concern uh, is inherently wrong. Uh, is there risk in any system of of information. Sure. But if, if we're going with that logic, then we should shut down cell phones and we should shut down laptops. We shouldn't even have the internet, but that's the way we're moving in society. We have wireless communication system. And again, we're talking about repair and diagnostic information, how my car is operating. If my piston is misfiring, if a hacker wanted to get into information, I'm sure they would go for the banking app that's on my phone. They would go for a Facebook. They would go for many more things besides diagnostic repair information that right now is accessible to the OBD port and the OBD port is becoming wireless. Again, for third parties to say they're getting direct access to this is inherently wrong. Look at the structure of this ballot initiative as written. This is about getting the owner direct in, uh, access to their diagnostic or repair information. Um, and we believe this can be done in a safe and secure way. Security ledger has written about this extensively. Uh, Ed Davis, former Boston police commissioner, uh, Mike Brown, former head of cybersecurity for the Navy, Bruce Schneier who teaches cybersecurity at MIT, uh, Suffolk Law did a third party report on, on how this law was written and how it gives manufacturers a monopoly on this repair information. And we just believe as a, as a coalition that if you bought the car, you should get direct info, information on how to fix it.
3: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with the yes and no proponents of the Massachusetts ballot question one. The question more commonly known as the updated version of the 2013 right-to-repair bill, but is really more accurately the Vehicle Data Access Requirement Initiative. My guests are Connor Units, who is the spokesperson for No on One, the Coalition for Safe and Secure Data, and Tommy Hickey, the director of the Yes on One campaign, the Right to Repair Committee. Um, Tommy, here's a question for you. Would you feel okay telling your mom to vote yes for this, that that her data is going to be fine, no worries about hackers and getting information and stalking and all of that. That's just exaggerated as far as you see.
6: Uh, yes, Callie, I, I would uh, very much <laughs> be okay with having my, my mom vote yes on this. I, look, I understand I, I've seen their commercials. Um, we think they're egregious. We think they're disingenuous. Um, we think they're distasteful. Um, they use a group in their uh, voter summary guidebook, the Jane Doe Organization for Domestic Violence Abuse, and um, Jane Doe never gave them per- permission for this. Um, they, were, they were convinced that this had to do with GPS location because the car manufacturers told them. And the proof was in the pudding. Look at the language. A mechanical information to diagnose, maintain, and repair the car. You do not need that information to diagnose, maintain, and repair the car. That is not GPS information. They kept those ads running without Jane Doe's permission. Uh, and they're preying on women to scare them into voting no on this. And we think that's inherently wrong. I absolutely feel... Uh, A yes vote empowers the consumer to get their repair and diagnostic information directly, and they can share that information with who they want. Not the car manufacturer collecting this, not them being the only one that chooses this. Let's let the consumer get the best informed decision and all the information necessary to fix their car.
3: All right, same question to you, Connor. Are you okay with telling your mom to vote no? Uh,
5: Absolutely, because it's not necessary and it will expose her data. And I want to respond to something because this is now several times. Um, that this that this issue has been uh, mischaracterized. Um, Jane Doe's uh, the Jane Doe language in our in our red book was based on testimony they submitted publicly to the legislature. Directly quotes from that. At no point was Jane Doe's testimony ever used in any of our advertising. Um, so that's completely false to imply that. Um, uh, uh, all of our ads were based on public testimony, both in Massachusetts and in California where uh, a similar measure was previously defeated. And I also want to note that, you know, when, when, um, we're quoting people like Boston police commissioner Ed Davis, we should note that he's been paid $75,000 by the yes on one campaign to go around about this. And, and to add to that, he, you know, is, is going on these, uh, t- television commercials himself and joining in this chorus of the yes on one who somehow claimed that, if yes- one passes there will be or doesn't pass, there will be some sort of monopoly um, on, on car repair. So I think it's important to note that 70%, I, I believe I already mentioned, 70% of after warranty uh, auto repairs are already conducted by, by independent repair shops. And that's not going to change because they are a critical part of the repair network uh, and, and key to this infrastructure to somehow try and scare them and scare people and say you will not be able to get your car fixed where you want. Uh, completely flies in the face of the existing law and is a complete falsehood. So that is what we've been dealing with for the past year since this question was filed is is a question that is based on a premise that is simply not true.
3: Um, I can't speak to how much uh, uh, former police commissioner ed davis is getting paid but i can say on both sides there are millions of dollars this is to my listeners there's you know 15 million on one side and 20 million on the other side so there's a lot of money at stake in pushing both the yes and the no parts of this discussion and debate so my listeners should should understand that Now, because this is all about the data is, I asked Professor Shannon Roberts, who owns the data? There's been a lot about who owns the data. Uh, And it's kind of an interesting response she gave me here. Let's take a listen.
0: Of course, if you collect data, you always have the opportunity to share it. But I think car manufacturers have the legal obligation to not share their information without telling the consumer first. I'm sure that's something that you sign when you buy the car and when you have the car serviced. In terms of who owns the data, oof, that's a tough one. <laughs> because this data that you generate is your vehicle, technically you own it. But I think you have to give access to other people in order to get your car repaired. So there must be some sort of agreement that's signed when you go to take your car service that says you're allowing the car manufacturer or some third party to access the data that you've collected.
3: So. The reason I asked that question of her and I, and I just came to me is that I know if I have a problem with my computer and I talk to the IT guy, presumably what's on my computer is, is somewhat protected. But he or she can ask me for access to control it uh, so that they can go in there and fix it if I'm having a problem. So I, I've done that. I've had that happen. So. You know, it's interesting to see how uh, somebody else can come in to access the data. So, you know, there had been some discussion about maybe somebody the selling of the data would be involved. That there is a there's, there's a possibility that the data would be gathered and then it would be sold, like you know, Amazon sells your information to other third parties. But couldn't the automaker sell it too if they wanted to? I, I just doesn't seem like that. That seems like a wash uh, to me. Um, but I'm going to allow both of you to respond to that, Connor.
5: Uh, thank you, Callie. On the, on the first point um, that professor made, I want to note that automakers in 2014 uh, jointly came together and issued a set of privacy principles that are registered with the Federal Trade Commission that explicitly lay out what they're doing to protect consumer privacy and consumer information. Uh, secondly, a, uh, every automaker is different, but a number of them are making this information available to consumers. For example, uh, BMW has a car data program uh, that is already rolled out in Europe and is being rolled out in the U.S. this year, has already started, that um, does essentially what question one asks for, and it provides an app that gives consumers access to their information and allows them to decide who gets access to what. Uh, these are already being rolled out, but they're being done in a safe and timely way that ensures that this information is protected and that there is never direct access to the vehicle, which could be used for um, some of the, the risky behaviors that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and others have warned about
6: okay tommy yeah so when it, you know the, the first issue about ownership i think that's a great question to my knowledge there is no federal or state um litigation on who owns the information what we're after here is not ownership but i do think it should be looked at i do think it should be litigated uh we're talking about access of the of the information uh, to fix the car and that's what this this ballot initiative calls for when it comes to what car manufacturers are collecting uh, what they're doing with that information. Look, they have a closed, unregulated system. Of course, they're selling this information. They even admit to selling it. The Ford CEO has already talked about how he sells that information. Uh, if you look up exactly what they're doing, they're selling it to insurance companies. They've already linked up with State Farm and Geico. Uh, that's public knowledge. Uh, they have self guided principles, is like me being on a self um, diet. Hey, if I cheat on my diet, I'm the only one who knows. I don't have a trainer here looking at exactly what I'm eating. Um, they have closed unregulated system. And we're at the beginning of a very big conversation. Um, this is worth billions of dollars to them to have a monopoly on this, on this information. Uh, and we are at the beginning of, of, of moving to a wireless society. We need to make sure that this is a regulated system. This is an open system and independent repair shops and owners can get access to this information.
3: I want to note that in uh, 2012, when this when the right to repair bill passed, it was the highest passing ballot question in Massachusetts history. So there is a huge amount of interest in this from consumers. And in closing, I'm going to allow both of you to give your one best shot so that people can once again hear for themselves clearly where why you say yes and why you say no. And they can you know, make a decision for themselves all right tommy hickey one thing for yes
6: sure so i think it's important for voters to know that voting no doesn't shut this system off car manufacturers are going to continue to collect wireless diagnostic information they'll be the only entity that collects it and controls it voting yes on this means that car manufacturers have to give you the owner all the diagnostic repair information not gps not personal all of the diagnostic repair information necessary to fix your car and allow you as the owner to authorize independent repair shops or dealerships the repair and diagnostic information. It empowers you to be the gatekeeper of your own repair information.
3: That's Tommy Hickey. He's yes on one now. Connor Units, one thing, no on one.
6: We
5: already have right to repair in Massachusetts. That will not change whether or not folks vote vote yes or vote no. What a yes vote will do is make your information, including your real-time GPS location data, more available and more accessible to anyone that can hack into a system. A no vote protects your information while also ensuring you can still get your car fixed wherever you want.
3: I thank both of you for a rigorous conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Thanks, Kelly. Connor Units is a spokesperson for the No on One Campaign Coalition for Safe and Secure Data. Tommy Hickey is the director of the Yes on One Campaign Right to Repair Committee. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at WGBH.org News, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Kate Dario is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.